morning, everyone. Thanks for coming this morning. It's good to be with you all. As you heard Michelle read the text this morning, you'll notice this is a very weighty text. There's a lot in here for us to unpack. Now, um, if you haven't made your way already, please go to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we'll start this morning. And last weekend, Pastor Sean, he preached through chapter 3, 1 through verse 7, and, and including verse 8. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to talk mainly on verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. And so I'll, I'll confess up front, we'll have a bit of overlap today, because verse 8, it's such an important verse. It's a, it's a hinge verse for us. Everything before it is related to verse 8, and, and then 8 through 11 are also hinged on verse 8. So in God's providence, we will have a bit of review of verse 8, which is okay, because it is a glorious verse for us. I want to start with this question. How valuable is Christ to you? How much do you treasure knowing him personally and relationally? How would you compare the value of Christ with everything else this world has to offer? Is Christ of greater worth? Is he of the same worth or less worth than anything else? The text this morning, it will reveal how the Christian should value knowing Christ. That we should be willing to count all things as lost in comparison and be willing to suffer loss in order to gain Christ so that ultimately we may know Christ. That's the ultimate end for us is that we may know the Lord Jesus. So my prayer this morning is that this wor- the sermon and God's word would be a litmus test for us, a window into our own hearts, that God might reveal our own heart's value structure this morning and open our eyes to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Okay, again, if you're in your Bible, we're, we're looking at verse 8, Philippians 3, verse 8. Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now we'll stop there. Now Paul starts out with the claim that he counts everything as loss. Now what's in view here, the immediate context is his Jewish achievements, his accolades, his pedigree. Pastor Sean referred to that that as Paul's resume from last week. Things that he now considers loss because of Christ. Okay, We see that list of achievements in verse 5 and 6, where Paul says, He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, he claims he was blameless. That's a, quite a list of accomplishments, right? For any person or any Jewish man in first century Israel, it's a very impressive list. But then the very next verse, verse 7, undercuts the value of it all. Cuts through the value of his, his Torah, his law, obedience, and all of his confidence in the flesh. It says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then in verse 8, he, he continues the same theme. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul considers all things he used to value before knowing Christ as lost, no longer a gain, as a net worth of zero compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So what Paul's doing, he's making a comparison here. So he's comparing his his self-righteous acts of Jewish obedience with knowing Christ. That's the comparison. And he's weighing the two. Okay, and it's clear his prior accomplishments, things that he used to highly, highly value, 
or is nothing compared with knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, it's really important for us to understand what does Paul mean by knowing? What does he mean by knowing Jesus? Is this just a, um, an intellectual exercise where we have an encounter with the facts about Jesus? We know a lot about Jesus, right? The same set of facts that will remind you the demons have, right? But they don't know Jesus relationally. This knowing is much more than that. So Paul, he's actually picking up on an Old Testament theme. And the theme is to know someone uh, means to know them personally, relationally, experientially, and intimately. That's what he's meaning by this. This type of knowing, it's similar to the knowing for a parent and a child, the type of knowing between a husband and a wife. Okay, it includes the head knowledge of a person, the facts about a person, but it includes much more as well. It, it assumes a close and personal relationship. Now, it's very interesting. Paul, nowhere else in the entire New Testament, in fact, no other New Testament writer in all of the New Testament refers to Jesus in this way. Okay, his, his use of Christ Jesus, my Lord, is, is specific to this passage only in all of the New Testament. Jesus is Paul's personal Lord. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's a statement that portrays intimacy and it portrays devotion. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that's not a coincidence that Paul uses that statement here, only here, when he's talking about knowing Christ. He's talking about knowing Christ in a personal and relational type of way. Now, it's impossible for us this morning, it's impossible for me to overstate the value of knowing Jesus. It really is. I'll say this up front. This is the main point of the text this morning, and it's going to be the main point of the sermon as well. Okay, so verses 8 through 11, what we see is that the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal, is to know Jesus. That's it. Okay? And we'll see how the text reveals this to us. Verse 8. You can look at verse 8 with me. It opens up with everything counted as loss. Why? It's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And then the second half of the verse, Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. So he's suffering the loss of all things. He's counting them as rubbish in order. That's a purpose statement. The purpose statement is so that he may gain something, gain Christ, which is obviously of more value than what he's giving up. And what is the purpose of gaining Christ? So that we may know Christ. Gaining Christ comes first, which we gain him through faith in him. We receive him through faith. And then we get to know him experientially as we walk our walk of faith from now until eternity. Okay, we gain Christ so that we may ultimately know Christ. And we know him in a relational, personal, experiential, and intimate way. Paul suffers loss so that he may gain Christ to ultimately know Christ. The highest purpose for any human, the highest purpose for any human is to know Christ. It is. And Paul picks up on the theme again in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He reiterates the main point. He comes back to this. That I may know him. That's again a purpose statement here. So being saved through faith is not our ultimate highest purpose. It's not. The upshot of salvation, the highest gift of salvation is that we get to know Christ Jesus, our Lord. In fact, Jesus defines eternal life. He defines it this way in John 17. He says, And this is eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life, that we know God and know his son, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Do you know Christ in this way? Do you have a personal abiding relationship with Christ Jesus, your Lord? Or do you simply know a lot of facts about Jesus? Knowing facts about Jesus in the final analysis will not be to our benefit. Do you know him intimately? Know Jesus. Because in the final analysis, Christ requires that we know him on this personal and relational level. He tells us in Matthew 7, he says this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, obviously Christ knows every person. He knows who they are. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. He's talking about, he doesn't know them in a relational sense where they've humbly submitted to him in childlike faith and have accepted him as Lord and Savior. That's what he's talking about there. Now, one of the ways we can tell if we truly know Christ, this is one of the ways, okay, there's more than one, is that we see him as supremely valuable. We see him as supremely valuable. And that seeing his worth surpasses everything we once considered a value, making it seem as nothing, as complete loss. In fact, we must suffer loss in order to gain Christ. And actually, this is what happens at the new birth, when someone becomes born again. We see the value of Christ's worth. This is played out in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul says it this way. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. This is a reference back to the, the creation account in Genesis. God is doing a new creative work in the heart of a believer. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when God brings someone to faith, when he regenerates a heart, the person is able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And they want to know him forever. Right? Everything else they thought they had value, that had value is surpassed by the, the value of knowing Christ Jesus. And it's important. It's also not a one-time thing. There's an ongoing counting as loss compared to Christ all throughout our Christian walk. Right? Because notice, Paul says in verse 7, he says, I counted as loss. It refers to a past tense event. But then in verse 8, he says, indeed, I count. Right? That implies an ongoing counting. An ongoing counting as loss, things of lesser value than Jesus. Now, I want to make this point as well. The heart's value structure, it's not always as it should be, even in Christians, right? Because we still have sin within us. We still sin. And we don't always count losses as we should in comparison to Christ. And some of us came to faith at such a young age, we can't even remember what we held valuable before coming to know the Lord Jesus, right? So it's true, it can be less clear for some some Christians to see the losses as Paul does. Because Paul, he had such a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, right? Not, we didn't typically all have that same conversion story. However, the text, it still applies to us. Because we're mistaken if we think we get a pass because we didn't have the same Jewish strivings under the law. Okay, it still applies to us. And I'll show that here. Now, it's important. What does Paul mean by that word rubbish? 
an interesting word, right? It's actually a very, very harsh Greek word. It's a very harsh word. This is the, this is the definition. It, it refers to useless or undesirable material subject to disposal. Useless or undesirable material subject to disposal. Something like trash could be suitable. But on the extreme end, it can literally mean like dung or excrement. That's what that word can mean. It's a very, very harsh word. And when Paul uses the word, remember he does it in reference to all things. All things. So what does all things refer to here? Now look back at verse 7 with me. Look back at verse 7. So right on the heels of listing his Jewish achievements, Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, the immediate context there, the immediate context is his Jewish achievements, his, his pedigree, his resume, counting them as loss for the sake of Christ. But then in verse 8, he says this, indeed, indeed, which literally means not only so, but what is more. Not only so, but what is more. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And then I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So there's a progression. There's a progression that we see that Paul, he's expanding the original list in verse 7 to include all things. To anything of like kind or, or of value in this present age. He counts them as rubbish. Now Gordon Fee, who wrote a commentary on Philippians, he says the same thing. He says this, What all things entails is not immediately apparent. It includes the former gains of verse 5 and 6, but it implies more everything that others might consider to have value in the present age. Religious advantages, status, material benefits, honors, comforts, these appear to him as nothing at all, as total loss in comparison with Christ. Now, I agree with this broader understanding of all things. It's literally all things. And this view, it's consistent with what Jesus says in the Gospels as well. It is. Because he makes a shocking statement about how our love for him should compare to love for others. He says this in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a harsh statement. Okay, and this doesn't literally mean we're hating the people of our family because Christ and the scripture in other places says that we should love others and take care of them. But it's a, it's a comparison. This is a comparison. The same thing going on in our verses in Philippians. In comparison to how great our love and affection for Christ should be, it's like we hate everything else. Okay? And if we don't love Christ in this way, we're not worthy of being his disciples. That's what he's saying. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Jesus. And it's interesting because Jesus here he goes right after the one thing in our hearts that typically hold the highest spot of value. Our family relationships, our, our immediate family relationships. That's what he says. He says, those things which probably every person loves dearly, I desire to be loved more than those things. And, and Jesus requires that he be the highest place of value in our hearts. So this statement in Luke is consistent with Paul's statement that he counts everything as loss, as rubbish, compared to knowing Christ. So we don't, we don't get a pass just because we were never really into the Jewish law thing. Okay, the verse, it still applies to all of us here. 
Remember, Paul's list of achievements, they were his accolades, his trophies, his resume, things that were grounds for boasting and for self-confidence. There are many, many parallels in our modern age. Are there not? What of value in your life competes with knowing Christ? What of value in your life competes with knowing Christ? Is it your money? Could it be your career? Our possessions? How about our comforts? What about your health? Does being healthy, is that the, the most important thing in your life that you'd give anything for? Your health? Or does Christ occupy that spot? What about our, our leisure or vacations? Maybe our entertainment, our sports. How about our kids' sports? Kids' sports are a big deal in, the, in our communities. We feel the weight of that in our family. Where does that sit with Christ? How about your intellect? Your reputation? Your friends, your family, and yes, even your own children in your own life. Church, what do we value more than knowing Christ? What do we count as gain when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? Okay, these things ought to be counted as loss, as rubbish. And I know this is a hard reality, and I know because I feel the weight of this on my shoulders as I study the text. It's a hard reality, and no one does it perfectly. I'll say that because we're still sinful. But that doesn't take away this fact, okay? This is the reality that everything in this life should be counted as loss in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. Everything. Let's continue on in the second half of verse 8. Paul says this, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So, by the way, to be found in Christ, it means that we're united to him. We're united to him. And what does that look like? To be found in Christ means, continue on, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, so being found in Christ or being united to Christ means we don't have a righteousness of our own. A righteousness that comes from the law, well, that, that's Paul's immediate context here, but really anything else. We don't have a righteousness, a self-righteousness that comes from anything. Remember, Paul claimed this, he said this in verse 6. This is according to the, the, steward, the, the standard of Jewish law-keeping, which is a human standard, that he was blameless. He called himself blameless in verse 6. Does that like... I mean, we know that can't be right because Paul still needed Christ to be saved. Right? So clearly the Pharisees' standard of righteousness under the law, it's not the same as God's. So what's the difference here? Well, the Jewish standard was not according to to knowledge. Romans 10 says this. It says, For I bear them witness. He's talk, Paul's talking about his Jewish people here. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, so the Jews and Paul before conversion, they had a zeal for God but it was not according to knowledge. They were ignorant of something, right? And what they missed is that the righteousness that they needed to be in right standing with, from, with God, it doesn't come from within, okay? Or by observing the law, it comes from God. The righteousness we all desperately need comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. And ironically, the Jews 
who were so zealously following the law and seeking after the law and studying the prophets, they were all pointing to the righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ. Remember, Christ is the fulfillment of all of the law. Right? He fulfills it to everyone who believes in him. We also see this in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so Christ, he takes our sin, he bears the penalty for our sin on the cross, and we become the righteousness of God. We gain a right standing with God, we're declared righteous in the heavenly ledger, okay, and it happens instantaneously the moment you put your faith in Christ. And then verse 9, that's what it says, but, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know, I know many of you have been Christians for a long time, and this may be just a, a simple principle that we're saved by grace through faith, but that is something we have to rehearse again and again and again and again. We cannot continue. We need to remind ourselves of this continually because our tendency is to go the other way, to try to earn it. Right? Faith is a receiving. It is receiving. We are not doing or performing. Faith is trusting in Christ as a gift, receiving the gift of, gift of God's righteousness. We're not performing. We're not working. We're not earning anything. Romans says this. Romans 3.25 says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So you receive Christ through faith. That's a receiving. Okay? And if you're here this morning and the righteousness you're bringing with you is that of your own, maybe it's based on your own Christian merits, that you come to church, maybe you serve your brothers and sisters well, or you're, you're really good at reading your Bible and don't do what non-Christians do, and all the things that you think are helping you be saved, those things are not righteousness, Right? If those are the things you bring with you, they will not do you any good. They just won't. That's what God's word says. We need the righteousness from God received only through faith in his son. Church, is there, is there in any way, are we seeking a workspace righteousness of our own? Has it crept into our minds in any way? Are we mistaking persevering in sanctification, doing things that, that show the fruit of the spirit? Are we thinking those things might be saving us in any way? Are we relying on those good works in any way? Because we shouldn't be. We need to be aware that our default human tendency is to earn, to somehow add to our salvation through works. And it's easy to do. Everyone wants to say, I did it. I had a hand in it. Right? That's easy for us to do. What does Paul say? He says, that's rubbish. That's dung. He says, that's foul. And it will not work. Stand firm in Christ's righteousness through faith alone. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not claiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, just thank you for coming first. We're glad that you're here and glad that you're willing to hear the word of God spoken. We think it benefits the believer and the unbeliever. Everyone can benefit from the word of God. But I will say this, because when we all die, we all have to give an account of our life to God. And if you're thinking that you'll make the case that you were a good person, okay, or that you were better than the next guy, you weren't as bad as others, you cannot count on that. 
Remember, his standard is perfection. No one's perfect. Your best achievements in this life, apart from faith, they're not pleasing to God. They're simply not. And the the Bible actually speaks in stronger terms about this. It says, your works that you think are good before God, apart from faith, they're actually nothing but filthy rags before the Lord. It's very strong language about our, our trying to be righteous before God. And the reason it speaks so strongly about this is because think about what we're doing. When we reject Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, the only begotten Son of God, the perfect Son who came to earth, lived the perfect life, was crucified, suffered and died a terrible, terrible death. He's of infinite value and of infinite worth. And we're saying, I reject that. I have something better. I have my own righteousness. I have my own standing. I've done some really good things in my life. Okay, if we, if we do that, that's an offense against a perfect and holy God who gave his one and only son. That, that costs him more than anything, right? So don't do that. We can't do that. It's not going to work. What's pleasing to God is accepting his offer of salvation for the forgiveness of sin through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's the only way to please God and to be saved. Let's go back to Philippians. Verse 9, again, it says, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, here comes the purpose statement again. Remember I said the purpose statement, to know Jesus. Here it comes. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So again, Paul circles back to the main point. The main point that I may know him. But then this time he elaborates on how we can know him. And this is really um, practical ways to know Christ. And he gives us two ways. The first, he says we can know him by knowing the power of his resurrection. And secondly, by sharing in his sufferings. Now we'll unpack each of these. Let me start with the power. Okay, Knowing the power of his resurrection. Christ wants us to know him through the power of his resurrection. In fact, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in his children, okay, through the Holy Spirit. Through the new birth and our journey of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, we can know his power and his spirit that's dwelling in us. Remember, it's the spirit of Christ that was sent into the world. That spirit of Jesus is in us. Knowing Christ involves experiencing his resurrection power. Now, there's a parallel verse to this in Ephesians 1.18. Okay, I'm going to read it now and just pay attention to Paul. And God obviously wants us to know this power. He says this, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, down to verse 19, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God is working a power in all of his children. The power is immeasurably great. And it's the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And God wants us to know Christ through experiencing the power in our lives. That's how we know Christ. We know Christ personally, relationally, intimately through the experience of his power working in us at the new birth initially and then through our journey of sanctification throughout our our life. Okay? Remember, many people think, how do I have fellowship with Christ? He's not here. How do I know him? 
Christ has sent his spirit into the world to take up residence in the hearts of his children. So when you're convicted by the spirit of God for sin and caused to repent, okay, that is a, an experience with his power in you. That's, that's a way to know Christ. When you're walking in, his, in step with his spirit day in and day out, that's a way we can know him because we're walking in step with his spirit. When you look back at your life and you see that when you first came a Christian until now, you see your growth in sanctification, your growth in holiness and becoming more like Christ day in and day out. The reason that's happening is because the power of Christ has been working in you since you first believed. And Paul says this in Philippians 1.19, just a couple chapters earlier. He says, Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is relying on the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to help him be delivered. That's relying and experiencing the power of Christ. That's how we can know him, by knowing his power that works in us. Secondly, we know Christ by sharing in his sufferings. This one's a little heavier. You may not enjoy this one quite as much, but look back at verse 2 for a moment. Look back at verse 2. So here, Paul, he warns the Philippians. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, Paul had concern that... Um, what these people were doing might be enticing to the Philippians that, that he had to warn them of the danger here. Now, he's referring to the Judaizers. Okay, these are people who were asserting that uh, people, they still need to follow some of the laws of Moses to be right with God, so they still need to be circumcised and follow the dietary laws. Um, and, and Paul was constantly railing against the Judaizers. But here's the question. Why might a mix between Christianity and Judaism be appealing to the Philippians? You might think, why would they even want to do that? Well, there's a reason it may have been appealing, and I think that's the reason why Paul warns them in verse 2. Okay? A system of belief where they can still have faith in Jesus as Messiah, but still follow enough of the laws to not receive persecution and suffering at the hands of the Jews. Okay? That may have been appealing for them, because they can still be a Christian, right? But compromise a little bit and say, okay, we'll follow enough of these laws so the Jews don't come after us. Because the Jewish people were, they were very hard persecutors of the church in the first century. What does Paul say to that? Paul, Paul will have none of that. Paul claims that we know Christ by experiencing his power and sharing in his sufferings. It's not an, it's not an or. Both of them are true. We cannot separate the two. We cannot know his power apart from knowing his suffering. They come together. It's a packaged deal. That's how Christ wants us to know him. Experiencing his power, knowing him through his power, and knowing him through suffering. His power is not to be used to avoid suffering, but to endure suffering. We need his power to suffer well. We really do. You know, Peter claims in 1 Peter 4 that we should rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings, I'll make the claim that you cannot rejoice as you should apart from the power of Christ working in you. You can't. That's not natural. Who can rejoice in their sufferings apart from the Spirit of God giving us the ability to rejoice? Okay, we need the power to suffer well. So here's the key. Do you want to know Christ? Do you want to have fellowship, deep and intimate fellowship with Christ 
than share in his sufferings. We can't miss this. We cannot know Christ as we ought. We cannot know our Lord and Savior as we should, personally, relationally, experientially, and intimately, unless we share in his sufferings. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ is a personal experience with Christ. Sharing in his sufferings is, hear me, it's a fellowship with Jesus. Do you want to have fellowship with Jesus? Then share in his sufferings. I'm not claiming we should run out and try to suffer, okay? But when trials come, because they will, we shouldn't be surprised at the, at the trial when it comes as if something strange were happening. Remember, Christ wants us to know him more, more intimately through these trials. And we should want to know him more through these trials. And it's also suffering like he suffered, which is for righteousness' sake. Okay, if we sin and we're punished for it here in this life, you know, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for the gospel, or your brothers and sisters in Christ, or giving up your own comforts, things that you value dearly for, for your brothers and sisters. Right? When we do those things, we are suffering, and we are knowing Christ in fellowship while we suffer. And not to mention, we're becoming like him as we suffer. In fact, Jesus, he was upfront about this. He didn't hide the fact that his disciples must suffer. He was upfront about this in the very beginning. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, we all know the cross is a symbol of death, right? He tells us we must take up our cross daily to know him. Why? Because Christ Jesus, our Lord, suffered. He was hung on a tree. And are we better than our master that we should not share in his sufferings when he has set an example for us to follow in his footsteps? The Christian life is marked by sufferings as Christ was. And as verse 10 says, we become like him in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul says that this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we're persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Are we willing to suffer for Christ? Are you willing to suffer to know your Lord more deeply and more intimately? And, you know, it's part of the deal we all signed up for. As harsh as that may sound, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know there's no going back, right? Because the path we're on is the only one that leads to eternal joy, to eternal salvation, to an eternity of getting to know Jesus more and more. In comparison to knowing him, we cannot go back to the dung, the street trash of this world that we used to see as supremely valuable before knowing Christ. Because Christ is infinitely more valuable than all that. He really is. And then the final result, verse 11, says this, attaining the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so that by any means possible, right, if we continue in the faith, if we continue in Christ, if we're found in him, continue to know him more and more through the resurrection power and sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, continue to count things as lost compared to his value, we will attain the resurrection from the dead. That's a sure thing. God, who is faithful, will see us through to that end. Okay, I'd like to leave you with this this morning. I think it's, um, it's been made clear that the text has shown that knowing Christ is of infinite value. It really is. But verses 8 through 11, 
they also remind us of something Paul said earlier in the letter. Okay, in chapter 1, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the same idea here. Our life should be defined by Christ. To live is Christ. We live to know him and the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings. And then when we die, we call it gain because we get to be with him. And then when we're with him, we get to know him more fully because we see him face to face. And then we get to know him for all of eternity. And that's why we call it gain. Getting to be with and know our Savior personally. Okay? Christ should be all in all for us. And that's essentially what verses 8 through 11 are shouting. Now I say shouting because of how overly Jesus-centered this text is. It's overly Jesus-centered. It's crying out to us the centrality of Christ in everything. Now I'll compress it now in, in a short way and you can see how everything is wrapped around Christ. It says this, For Christ's sake we suffer the loss of all things, that we may gain Christ, be found in Christ, receive the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ, so that we may ultimately know Christ. And we know Christ through experiencing Christ's resurrection power and sharing in Christ's sufferings, becoming more like Christ in his death in order to be resurrected with Christ and share in, you guessed it, Christ's glory. Okay? So so Jesus is everything for us. It's amazing when you look back at the the subject matter of a text and how overly Jesus-centered it is. It's shouting at us. Jesus is central in everything in our lives. Anything of value in this life should be counted as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Is that where you're at this morning? Let us strive to know Christ Jesus, our Lord, more and more until we meet him face to face.